We are well into a series, Holy Lifestyle. Last week we looked at holy thinking. And the logical next step is to talk about holy speaking or right speaking. Colin Urquhart certainly agrees with that. He says, if your thinking is in line with God's word, then your speaking will be full of faith. That is the logical next step. Let's have a look at the Word of God, and in particular, Matthew chapter 12, verses 30 to 37. The context is that Jesus has just received an accusation from the Pharisees after Jesus had cast out demons, and the Pharisees say, oh, he just cast, cast out demons by Satan, the prince of, of demons, and Jesus says, this is completely ridiculous. He doesn't use those exact words, but he says, how can Satan drive out Satan? There's no logic to that at all. And then he goes on to say, verse 30 of Matthew 12, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Spirit will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognised by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of a good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, by your words you will be condemned. So clearly what we say matters. Especially in this age of instant communication, whether it's by word of mouth or by Twitter, Facebook or email, whatever means of communication we have at our disposal. What is right speaking? Well, it would certainly involve being obedient to God, being Christ-like, edifying anything which would advance the kingdom of God. Why does it matter? What do we want to, to achieve? Well, just to give a, a few instances of where right speaking may apply. It may apply in using persuasiveness in encouraging younger believers or leading non-believers towards Christ. It may be in giving compassionate words that heal or soothe. It may be in giving helpful and clear information, imparting knowledge, but also showing the humility that gives the glory to God. It may be in welcoming hospitality in the broadest sense, both as a host in welcoming someone to a church gathering, for example, or as a guest in, receive, in returning that welcome in, in, in the right spirit and making the, the host feel at ease. It may be in asking honest questions, in sharing humour. Occasionally it might be in issuing warning. It may be in the form of discussion, in sharing ideas and in planning. But I want to suggest there are four things we can look at, four essential things, some of which are highlighted clearly in this passage, by which we can achieve right speaking. The first one 
may sound fairly obvious, and it is a bit of a repetition from last week. No apologies for that. Making sure that your heart is right before God. Or, and this, version, this was not particularly elegantly put in the NIV, I prefer this subtitle, Out of the Abundance of the Heart, the Mouth Speaks. If the heart is pure, then good fruit will come. We sung a lovely song last Sunday, Purify My Heart. Let it be as gold and precious silver. If a heart is, is purified, if a heart is right before God, then the right words will come out. Proverbs 4.23 urges us to guard our heart above all things, because from it, from the heart, flow the springs of life. So our heart must be our priority. So the first part of right speaking is right prayer. Now, if that sounds quite daunting, remember it is from the heart. So the exact words do not matter. And it could be a simple cry for help to, to the Lord. The mouth responds to whatever fills the heart. And if our heart is right, to some degree, the words will inevitably follow. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. He says, therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It's a, a physical impossibility. You cannot say Jesus is Lord until you've actually taken the step to become a Christian. Well, you might say it sarcastically or quote somebody else, but from your heart you cannot say Jesus is Lord until you've actually taken that step of giving your life over to Jesus Christ. And similarly... Once you have done so, you cannot seriously misuse Jesus' name once you've become a Christian. Jesus makes a distinction in this passage between words that are said against the Son of Man, against Jesus, and words against the Holy Spirit. Now, huge confession, but not an unusual one. I used to blaspheme a lot, well, pretty regularly before I became a Christian. So I used many words against the Son of Man, usually the same words every time, um, just using Jesus' name wrongly, repeatedly. Praise God that I've been forgiven for that. Not unusual. Peter denied Jesus three times in one evening. Paul persecuted Jesus. They were forgiven. Now, when I became a Christian, when I gave my life to Jesus, I immediately stopped using blasphemous language. It was immediate, from overnight. There are other habits I had which have taken longer to deal with and perhaps are still uh, being dealt with. But that was one thing which happened overnight. Probably within the same evening, actually. But even in the days prior to my conversion... I, there were times when I just could not help myself. Even when I was thinking seriously about committing my life to Jesus, Jesus Christ, I was still blaspheming. I remember one evening when I was having a discussion with two people who I can perhaps loosely call my counsellors, and I confessed to them, well, actually, I did use some inappropriate language, um, some blasphemous language this afternoon, and very gently they came back to me and said, well, actually... You used it about two minutes ago. In fact, we've lost count of the number of times you've said, Oh God, oh Christ, 
because we can't, there's a sense in which we cannot help ourselves. The, the starting point has to be that we need to be born again. We need to give our lives to Christ. So if that's not you, let's do the thought. Jesus makes this distinction, though, between words which are said against him, often in ignorance, and sinning against the Holy Spirit. And it's worth perhaps underlining this briefly. The context is the Pharisees were saying he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Mark's version of this passage is even more explicit because it says that he was, they were making this accusation. They kept on doing it. It's repeated. It's repeated and, and deliberate accusations. Even when they were shown to be illogical. That there's no logic that Satan could be casting out Satan. So sinning against the Holy Spirit is the repeated resistance to what the Holy Spirit is convicting you of. The, the, the Pharisees were convicted that Jesus was the real deal, that he was the Messiah, yet still they resisted the Holy Spirit instead of responding to what the Holy Spirit was prompting them and to at least examining things further, they resisted and persisted in, in, in persecuting Jesus all, all the way. And that was the, the unforgivable sin, a sin against the Holy Spirit, a sin against what the Holy Spirit was convicting them about. So how do we get our hearts right? Well, one of the things that needs to be done is to examine what do you cherish most? What's stored up in your heart? What is your treasure? Could be how you spend your time. What, what is the things which matter most to you. Jesus calls on us to store up treasures in heaven and not things on earth which will rust away. Recently, I felt much more of a check on what I watch and what I read. And I've, in the past, I've justified that by saying, well, this is great literature. It, it's, it's, it's educational. And the Lord would say, well, I don't, don't care how educational it is. Enough is enough. That's, I want you to focus on my word more. Have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. So the solution is a daily repentance and committing our lives to Jesus, a daily surrender. And also being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the sense in this verse in Ephesians, Ephesians 5.18. Be repeatedly, continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives an example of this in John 7 where... He's in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So in relationship with Jesus, there'll be a tremendous flow of the Holy Spirit of, of new life coming from within. Interestingly, Jesus chose the last and greatest day of the feast, the time of maximum impact. Whilst it was true that there were times when he would perform his miracles and ask that, that this, the, his action would not be made known pub publicly, or even demand that it would not be made known publicly, and his actions were often disobeyed because of the enthusiasm of the person who's just been healed. On this occasion, he knew that this was the right time, and spoke out at the, the time of maximum impact because he was in tune with the Father and what was appropriate for the time. There shouldn't be blessing and cursing coming from the same tree. 
What can make the tree good or bad? Well, the correct nutrients. I'm a bit nervous, actually, because I know I'm in the presence of a gardening expert, but so I'm going to be very guarded in my comments. But the correct conditions, even a, even a dose of winter can help, as so long as it's not too severe. Appropriate pruning. Work can be repetitive. It's seasonal, sometimes harsh and testing. But ultimately, the work that's done in our heart is for our own good. But it's up to us to make the tree ourselves good rather than bad. And there's quite a contrast made here in this passage between good and bad. Making either make the tree good and the fruit will be good, or make it bad and the fruit will be bad. It's quite fashionable nowadays to pay attention to the Chinese idea of yin and yang. Yin yang literally means dark, bright, or negative, positive. And we need to be aware that this is not a biblical philosophy and it is completely at odds with what Jesus is saying. Because the idea of yin and yang, as I understand it, is we're made of bits which are good, bits which, which, which are, are bad, but they're complementary. So sometimes your yin will dominate, sometimes your yang will dominate. But we need a bit of the contrast between the dark and the light for the rich tapestry of life. Well, that may be true in artwork, in, in painting, but it's certainly not true in terms of your moral well-being. Jesus is absolutely clear in three verses, 33, 35, 37, the passage we just read. We have a choice. We either make the tree good or you make it bad. You either be justified or you'll be condemned. There's no compromise with darkness. And this uncompromising language is included when Jesus refers to the fact that we will be called to account for every empty word that we utter. The NIV uses the word empty. The American Standard Version says careless, every careless word. Other versions say useless or thoughtless. Now, all of these do convey something of the idea of the, the, the original Greek word. But in fact, the original word here, and it's an easy one to remember, is argos. Nothing to do with the, the catalogues. But argos, the original Greek word, is composed of two parts. One meaning not, and the other mean, meaning work. And the best translation is idle, every idle word. Now, that may seem strange. How can a word be idle? But in that sense, it means, when we say that every word, every idle word, is words which produce nothing of moral worth. I mean, the Pharisees, for example, had not bothered to check and make a right assessment of Jesus. Theirs wasn't a sincere inquiry. So that even at the most basic level, if they'd asked the question, who is Jesus, that would have been a valuable, these would have been valuable words. But theirs was, their words were completely destructive. False accusations not just based on ignorance, but based on a rejection of the truth. Our words are actually meant to do useful work for the kingdom. Every word that we utter. Now, if that seems a little bit heavy, that shouldn't cause us any particular anxiety. We're not expected a rigorous self-examination every time we open our mouths. Firstly... 
once we, our heart has been changed, there will be certain words which naturally flow. But there will be times where we just need to check ourselves and think, is this a, a valuable word that is going to advance the kingdom of God or is it going to detract from it? A former colleague of mine in, t- in teaching used to say he had a daily prayer and say, God, will you please sanctify the words that I say today and the actions that I have to take which I must make off the cuff because I haven't got time to think about it and pray about it. Well, that sounds a sound enough way to do about it. I'm not sure I did that. I would, I would just do a very quick, silent help or cry for wisdom. But what I'm saying is that there are ways and means. We don't have to you know, be over-anxious about trying to find the perfect words. But we do need to ask the question, do our words carry moral worth? Or are they useless? Are they sarcastic, demeaning, or contemptuous? Do we try to work out the best possible put-down for someone who's wronged us? I know I've been guilty of that in the past. Think of, think of some, some wrong that's been made years ago, and I think, think of a really good adjective to really throw back if I meet that person again. Then a few, then a, you know, a few months down the line, I thought, well, unless, unless it's been dealt with, we'll go back to that same thought and think, actually, that adjective isn't quite as good. I can think of a really, an even nastier one. That'll, that'll be even better. Oh, and I'll throw in that phrase, by which time if that person's moved on, may even be long since dead. But unless it's been, been dealt with, it's been nipped in the bud, and it will start to eat, eat away in us. So instead of trying to think up the best possible put down, praying for that person, praying for ourselves, that we will not allow that, whatever has happened years ago, to have a hold on us. So there must be a point, first of all, where we give our lives to Christ. There must be an ongoing submission and a refilling with the Holy Spirit and a recognition that there's no compromise with darkness, making sure that what fills our heart, first of all, is the Lord. Second thing to look at, being slow to speak. In right speaking, once our heart is right, also important to be slow to speak. James says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to learn, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Jesus gives some plenty of examples of very simple commands where he just gives simple words for us to, us to follow. When he's walking on water, he says, take courage. Literally, I am Yahweh. I am who I am. Do not be afraid. No more words needed. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command that I come to you on the water. Jesus says, come. Slow to speak. Simple expressions. Proverbs says, he who restrains his lips is wise. He who is trustworthy conceals a matter. Proverbs 15, 28, the heart of the righteous ponders what to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. And it's interesting in Proverbs That's just one example, but there's a contrast between considered thought and rash speech. It's not a contrast between rash speech and another type of speech. Sometimes we say nothing, think things through, and possibly give a response. He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. And if you look through the book of Proverbs, there are numerous examples of of how to use our tongue 
under being slow to speak, limit what you say. Not all is helpful. Paul was quite deliberate in restricting what he, he said. In fact, he determined to know only that Christ was crucified. It's almost though he was shutting off most of his great intellect and saying, I'm not going to use that knowledge. The only thing I'm going to use when I first encounter a group of people is about Christ crucified. That's the, the main message. I, he's not going to show off the knowledge that he'd acquired over many, many, many years. Now, later, when he was put, staying in a place like Corinth or Ephesus for a while, he had much to say, but not initially. We mentioned right praying. Jesus warns against avoiding meaningless repetition, using as many words as possible. And there's a virtue in slow, deliberate, considered prayers. Not worrying that the words don't flow so easily. Some of the most powerful prayers I've, I've heard in my lifetime have been really, almost agonizing, slow prayers, where almost every word counts, and almost, almost as every word hurts sometimes. No oaths. No self-justification. We don't need to back anything up by swearing anything, by promising anything. If our character is pure and true, then that should, should be all, all that is needed. Third thing to look at may seem fairly obvious. Being truthful. The Bible says that truthful lips will be established forever and that God hates a lying tongue. Now, being truthful may mean that we have to get, occasionally give a rebuke or a constructive criticism to someone. If that person is a wise man or a wise woman, they'll accept this. They'll appreciate constructive criticism. But we need to be prepared to receive it ourselves as well. Jesus resisted the enemy constantly through the word by being faithful to the word of God. And while he was in the desert confronted by Satan, he included, at the end of his uh, temptations, a command or a rebuke. He said, begone Satan. And that's exactly what happened. Satan departed. Being truthful is more than just reporting things accurately. Making, making sure that you are recording things as they happened. Not, give, not giving any, any inaccuracies. The word true actually means faithful, loyal. Pilate asked the question, what is truth? Well, truth is actually being faithful to God's truth. During the week, I received, and maybe one or two also received this, a communication from the, the Barnabas Fund about some issues where Christianity is being threatened in, in the UK. And there are seven instances of areas where our Christian foundations are being very much under threat, one of which is quite close to home, in fact. And it's about two street preachers, you may have heard it at the time, in 2016 were preaching in, in Bristol, and they were arrested. But they weren't arrested because the, the preaching was too loud or abusive or, or whatever. It was just for what they were preaching. And this is what the Crown Prosecution 
service lawyer claimed, quote, to say to someone that Jesus is the only God is not a matter of truth. To the extent that they are saying that the only way to God is through Jesus, that cannot be a truth, unquote. That's what the Crown Prosecution Service attempted to assert, that, that, make, that saying that Jesus is the only way to God cannot be, a, be a, the truth. Not. Might be. That was a definite assertion. Well, ultimately... The, the two preachers were acquitted. But it just shows to what extent the legal system will try to go to derail God's truth. But we need to be loyal to God's truth. That will often mean hostility to the world. Final point, being gentle. Proverbs again. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The idea of moving in the opposite spirit to the world. If the world gets more harsh and more aggressive, we become more gentle. If the world gets proud, we become humble in the opposite spirit. Gentleness means controlled strength. It doesn't mean weakness or frailty. It just means controlling and marshalling your strength for the appropriate purposes. Jesus showed gentleness, for example, with a woman who was caught up in adultery in John 8. And his words at the end, has anyone con condemned you? No, sir, neither do I. On your way, don't sin anymore. He showed gentleness to the former blind man he'd healed when he discovered he'd been thrown out of the synagogue for no other crime than telling the truth, that Jesus was the one who'd healed him. Now, it may seem a very strange example to give in terms of gentleness, but, but I would remind you we're talking about controlling strength and often great strength. It may seem strange to be talking about elite units of the British Army and international athletes at this stage, but bear with me for a second. Clive Woodward, on, on his way to eventually coaching England to winning the Rugby World Cup in 2003, at one stage used the Royal Marines for a four-day period. And he sent his England squad off to the Royal Marines for various manoeuvres, various exercises to build up teamwork and, and discipline. At the end of the, the four days, naturally, he asked the Marine commanders, what do you think of my men? And the, the officers looked at each other, a bit wary, shall we tell him or shall we not? So they leaned forward, making sure no one else was listening, and said, well, if you really want us to tell you, there are men in your squad that we wouldn't want to go into battle with. Well, that wasn't enough for Woodward. So he said, well, okay, well, go on, spill the beans. Who? All right, so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. So a list of several players. And that was a, quite astonishing for Clive Woodward because he realised these were the very men that he had some question marks about but wasn't quite sure why. So he asked them, well, why? I mean, they're extremely skillful, well-trained athletes. Um, what's, what's the problem with them? It's not a question about their skills, was the reply. They may be very skillful athletes. We're not disputing that. It's their attitude. 
You see, we're highly trained to respond to situations in, in battle. And anything that saps the energy of the group can have fatal consequences. It's literally a matter of life and death. It could be a negative comment here and there, a bit of a moan, a bit of a criticism. But that sort of thing saps the energy of the unit and can have fatal consequences. That gave Woodward the idea that you're either one of two things. You're either an energizer by your words, that you're encouraging, you're supportive. There may be few words, but they can, they can be positive. It can make you feel, feel strong, infused, encouraged, or you're sapping their energy ever so slightly by your negative comments, negative body language. Now, by that, I do not mean that energy sappers are those we just naturally find slightly harder to get along with. That, that's quite normal. Quite normal in a church situation, there are certain people you will find conversation flows easier with, and certain people where it's not so easy to happen with. That does not mean that anyone is necessarily an energy sapper or an energizer. But if there are people who are using negative words, moans, complaints, every, repeatedly, and that it goes unchecked, they will start to draw strength. And we need to be aware if we're starting to use them. It's a challenge. Are we energizing people? Or are we drawing energy from them? I can think of a few of these energizing words that have made a difference. And they may be simple things. Maybe worth throwing, throwing them in. How are the quiet times? I was asked that as a young Christian. How's your Bible study going? What are you reading today? What are you reading it? How are you finding the book of Jeremiah, whatever the case may be? Just showing an interest in my spiritual well-being. didn't have to be hugely intensely personal. Pray with me. Being asked to, asked to pray with someone. Sometimes I found that quite an honour. Certainly found that an encouragement that I've been, been entrusted. You've underestimated your ability in, in this area. I think this could be an area of gifting that you've, you've ignored. Things I've not been aware of. I can think of informative sermons, sermons which provide revelation of God's word. I can think of some really carefully crafted, considered prayers that I was thinking about earlier. There are lots of ways in which we can energize our others with positive speaking. So, in all these four points, making sure our heart is right, being gentle, being truthful, being slow to speak, the good news is that we can all do it. Paul's speech was reportedly quite weak. It's thought that he had a bit of a speech impediment, yet he still managed to communicate the word of God extremely powerfully. D.L. Moody the famous American evangelist of the 19th century, was once taken to task after one of his messages. And someone said, you know, Mr. Moody, in the first ten minutes of your sermon, you made no fewer than, well, I forget the number, let's say a dozen elementary grammatical mistakes in your delivery. 
and Moody said, well, that uh, may well be the case. My early education was rather faulty. But I've resolved before God to make it my mission to use what I have got to communicate the word of God as effectively as I possibly can to as many people as I can. What about you? We can all become overcomers. We can all achieve for the kingdom of God. If we add on right speaking to the right thinking. That's one quote to finish with. We can all play a part like this. They overcame him, that's the enemy, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. When we become Christians, the blood of the Lamb has already started to have an effect on our lives. We've all got a testimony. And we can all live a victorious life in our speech as well as our thought. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you want us to be effective with our tongues and with any other instrument we use, whether it's our phones, keypads, any means of communication. Thank you that you don't want us to use any idle words, but every word that we use can have a real effect the kingdom of God and can have an impact. And Lord, we just pray that you'd guide us, Lord, in the coming days to use our, our words effectively in a way that honours you and brings others into your kingdom. Please give us the wisdom, Lord, to do so in the coming days. In Jesus' name. Amen.